Before we get started, just an FYI. This episode was recorded Friday, just before news broke that the FBI was looking into new emails pertaining to Hillary Clinton's personal email server. We know you'll have questions about that. We actually addressed some of it in Friday's episode, and we'll get to more of your questions on Monday. Okay, here's the show. Hey, everybody. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with an episode of Listener Mail. This is where we answer your questions about the issues, what we're seeing on the campaign trail, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. Now, you may be thinking that everybody called in sick today because <laughs> I'm hosting the podcast, but Tam and Sam are doing some other work, so I have commandeered the chair. And we have assembled an all-star team for your questions. Welcome, Susan. Strap in, suckers. <laughs> We've already hazed her properly. Okay, but before we get to some mail, a small correction. In an earlier episode this week, we mentioned it was Hillary Clinton's birthday, which it was, but we said that made her a Scorpio. And as one listener, Aaron, pointed out, maybe that's not exactly right anymore. Because as NASA recently announced, the Earth's axis no longer has the same alignment when the zodiac was drawn 3,000 years ago. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So wait, they've changed the dates on the horoscopes? Uh Uh-huh. Aaron writes to us. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you, and she means me because I am a Scorpio, are no longer a Scorpio and neither is Hillary Clinton. Both of you are now Virgos. Oh, my God. Although Virgos have a reputation for being overcritical and cranky. Not true. That's not me. They are also intelligent and reliable. That is me. Absolutely. Despite its cranky reputation, I have been a happy Virgo for the last 35 years. I'm now adjusting to my new sign as a fun and adventurous Leo. So thank you, Aaron, and thank you, NASA. Although... Aaron's mail so rocked my world that I had to go look at NASA's website. And NASA actually posted about this on their Tumblr. And NASA <laughs> is pushing back against yeah, the pushback. Keep that funding going. <laughs> because NASA posts, it's not surprising that astronomers maybe don't like being confused with astrologers <laughs> all the time. Oh. Cleo doesn't work at NASA. Yeah, so oh. NASA on its Tumblr writes with a little bit of attitude, Here at NASA, we study astronomy, not astrology. We didn't change any zodiac signs. We just did the math. (gasps) Rigged. Am I not still at triple Pisces? (laughs) I still claim Sagittarius, but I'm apparently in the 13th sign now. Which is an awesome sign. Wait, are you, what is it? Ophiuchus. That is awesome. Ophiuchus. Wait, wait, when the moon is in the 13th house, I'm sorry. That's just not good. And it's, what is it, the uh, the bearer of serpents or something? It's something about to yeah. do with serpents. It's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> All right, let's answer some questions. Uh, first, Scott Horsley, back in the podcast by popular demand. We got a lot of questions about Obamacare following your appearance in the podcast last week. So since you're here with us again, let's tackle a few more. First is from Roger, who writes... Hey, NPR politics team, I listened to the podcast with Scott Horsley, and I have a question about Obamacare costs. Isn't a big reason for people's higher premiums due to better coverage? Uh, Well, thanks, Roger, for the question. And more comprehensive coverage uh, is certainly one of the things that we got uh, through the Affordable Care Act. Insurance policies now have to cover, for example, preventive care and birth control at no out-of-pocket cost to the to the patient. Um, the biggest change, of course, is that insurance companies have to cover you even if you 
are sick. Uh, there's also some limits on how much variation there can be in pricing between the youngest, healthiest patient and the oldest, sickest patient. So all of those are factors. But all those things were true back in 2013 and 2014 when, when we started this, this process. So I don't think you can necessarily say those are the reasons that we're seeing a spike in premiums going into 2017. Those, the, the increases we're seeing right now has more to do with the experience that insurance companies now have under their belts. And what they found is that their pools of patients tend to be a little bit uh, older and sicker and more expensive to cover than they were expecting. One reason for that is that employers that offer health insurance to their workers have not uh, shed those insurance policies at the levels that a lot of forecasters thought. So uh, workplace policies are still the norm for most people, and we haven't seen the migration of people from workplace insurance to the Obamacare exchanges in the same levels that were expected. So most people still get their health care through their employer? Through their employer, uh, and Medicare and Medicaid are still big, big sources of insurance as well. So the Obamacare exchanges are still covering a a relatively small sliver of the population. Hmm, Cool. All right. Thanks, Roger. Um, Next up, we have a recorded question, yay, from two of our younger listeners, Bess and Emma. Let's hear it. Hey, Politics Podcast. I'm Bess, and I'm 11. And I'm Emma, and I'm 13. And we were wondering what the effects of this campaign will be on future elections, like when we vote in 2024. Yeah. Thank you. Man, Bess and Emma are great names. They feel like they're just like sidekicks taking Mm -hmm. on the world. (laughs) Bess and Emma coming at you. I don't know. I suppose maybe one of the most obvious places to start is that the Republican Party looks likely to look a fair bit different in 2024 than it does right now. It seems uh, ripe for change. That's right. I think the Republican Party is either going to look terribly different or terribly smaller because it can only grow by becoming more diverse. And I believe it will. I believe the Republican Party will survive all of this in some form and fashion. We may wind up with a third party. We might wind up with a fourth party. Hmm. If we get a third one, then I think the odds increase that we'll get a fourth one. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, that's getting all way too far in front of ourselves, though. Let's just talk about the effect that this election is going to have on our politics in general. I-, I would like to be more optimistic than this, but I'm afraid that many of the worst features of 2016 are going to return. We're going to see tremendous amounts of spending. We're going to see tremendous uh, amounts of negative campaigning. We're going to see vituperation of the opponent in the primaries and in the general election. And the general level of things is going to be lowest common denominator, which saddens me, and I hope that it's not true, and I hope that somehow some event, some unifying event for the country will lift us above the example of 2016. Right. And I mean, to tack on to what Ron said, um, and to add on to the despair here, uh, one of the things that I've really been fascinated by in this election is polarization. And any time I've written about it or about the way that media affects polarization or anything, I have asked the experts I've talked to, okay, how do we get out of this? How does this get fixed? And I get a resounding shrug, essentially, (laughs) through the phone line. I mean, they say, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. And so uh, it seems as if, you know, Bess and Emma may have that to look forward to. Because, listen, you know, we've had several crises. We've had an economic crisis recently, for example. I remember thinking to myself, oh, if ever there were a way that we would come together, it would be the economy has fallen apart. And it didn't happen. So I'm wondering, you know, what else could happen? I'm not sure. I also think about like how we experience elections and the speed of technology and communications and how much like Twitter and even Snapchat and all these things have changed the voter relationship. And I wonder by like 2024, 
what that'll be like, you know? Are we all, can we be like holograms in your home doing the NPR <laughs> politics podcast around your kitchen table? Or, you know, like what the the way we communicate with our politicians and with each other is changing at such a crazy pace that, you know, like Obama 08, Twitter wasn't a thing. You know, mm-hmm. and now it's like such a defining part of how we experience politics and elections and how our uh, one of the nominee communicates is through social media. Sure. So I think that is something that's changing at such a rapid pace. I can't even imagine what 2024 is going to be like. No, but I, if if Bassett and Emma happen to be in either Iowa or New Hampshire, there are already politicians getting ready for the 2024 election. <laughs> and I'm sure they'd like to make your acquaintance. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for writing, Bess and Emma. Uh, and do it again. Now for something completely different. Let's talk a little bit about baseball. We're going through the World Series right now, which is so it's got a lot of sports and politics on people's minds, like Patrick from Vienna, Virginia. Patrick writes, hey, y'all, an Atlantic article from Tuesday discussed something I've been speculating about the entire baseball playoffs, that a Cleveland win in the World Series could help Hillary Clinton finally move past Trump in Ohio. Do you think a sudden surge of optimism, regardless of the source, would register this late in the race? Is there a correlation between baseball outcomes and presidential elections? You may have heard the one about American League wins corresponding with Democratic Party wins. There have been a few speculations about that over the years. Total coincidence. I think any (laughs) scientist or any statistician or anybody who knows anything about either of these two subjects would say if there happens to be some coincidence of American League wins in the World Series and Democratic wins in the presidential election, it's a total coincidence. Everybody knows it comes down to the National Football Conference or the American Football Conference. That's that's what really matters. (laughs) However... Or the height of the socks (laughs) that the ballplayers are using. Well, that's true. However, this gets into a wonderful realm of academic research, which is totally non-political things and their effects on political races. So there's a study for everything. And once again, you preface all of this with this is just one study. One study from a few years ago found, and it was studying college football. The researchers found, quote, that a win in a local team's, uh, a popular (laughs) local team's football. (coughs) I'm sorry. A little lozenge? Yeah, thanks. The healthcare let's reporter the, will dispense some medicine here. <laughs> let's let the rustling of the lozenges get past around. It's called horsely care. Can... <laughs> it's open enrollment. you got to sign up for horsely care. Anyone else? I'm good. First one's free. Scott's my HMO. <laughs> okay. So, um, so a local football team's win in the 10 days before Election Day, these researchers found, caused the incumbent to receive an additional 1.61 percentage points in, of the vote in the Senate, gubernatorial, and presidential elections. And the vote was the effect was stronger on teams with more fan support. Hmm. So I'm going to want to see a p value on this, right? I, I know, but I mean, if one were to believe this, I mean, what there's in the World Series now you have the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians. So Ohio is a swing state, meaning if you want the incumbent party to win, Hillary Clinton should hope for a Cleveland Indians win. Well, that was like the Atlantic's theory is that it would help Clinton because. If you are feeling optimistic, then it means you feel good about the status quo mm-hmm. and that you're more likely to stick with the incumbent, the incumbent in this race being Hillary Clinton. Right. I asked my baseball experts, which are my husband <laughs> and his best friend, who is actually a professor at UMass Amherst and works in sports management, this question, because I feel like baseball fans are also like hyper statisticians, oh, the way sure. that people that obsess about political details do. Numbers for <laughs> the over, the yeah. overlap of political junkies and baseball junkies yeah. is very high. Well, mm-hmm. they were, but they were both kind of skeptical, which 
weird, but they made some good points was one that, you know, what's different is a lot of people are already voting. It might be different if like everyone still showed up right. and vote on election day, but the way we vote is different. And also that like it's the optimism factor, like when your team wins, you want to do things that keep that feeling going, but that this hasn't been a particularly optimistic election uh-huh. and that neither candidate is really seen as like the optimism candidate. So it may not work the same way. I did like the line, though, that it, it's been so long since the Cubs were even playing in the World Series. 1945, the, the, but who's the, counting? The 2016, election, the 2016 election had not even begun the last time the Cubs were in the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that That's long, how long this drought America. was. Yeah. It's been that long. And let me just say that the place to be this weekend in America is in Chicago in that iconic, gorgeous ballpark Wrigley Field, where they'll be playing the first home games they've played in the World Series in that park since 1945. Yeah. Also, Cleveland already had a big win this year. They've got LeBron. Hey, hey, they've had they a won championship. the championship. And they had the Republican you know, National Convention. Talk about trifecta. Spread Come it around on, a little bit, Cleveland. So greedy, Cleveland. All right. Moving on. Um, next up, we have another recorded question from Christopher in Michigan. He mentioned something called the Bradley effect, which is the idea that the opinion polls don't always reflect accurately who people are going to vote for. Let's hear it. Hey, NPR politics team. This is Christopher Johnson in Farmington Hills, Michigan. What role do you all think the Bradley effect will play in the current election? Do you think that there are people who are unwilling to show support for Trump to a pollster or on their lawn, but perfectly happy to pull that lever in the voting booth. Thanks. Thanks, Christopher. Uh, Ron, maybe explain for a little bit, what is the Bradley effect? The Bradley effect goes back to 1982 when Tom Bradley, who was the first African-American mayor of Los Angeles, was nominated to be governor of California by the Democratic Party. And the polls showed him ahead, in fact, substantially ahead, comfortably ahead. But in November, he lost that election to George Duke Magian, who was the Republican nominee for governor in 1982. And the speculation was that people were telling the pollster on the telephone, who is frequently an African-American, that they were for Tom Bradley, but they were secretly or at least hadn't really committed to voting for Tom Bradley, or perhaps they were secretly for George Duke Magian. This has never actually been in any scientific way demonstrated or proven that that actually went on. It's also possible that because the Duke Magian campaign was pretty intense, very aggressive that fall, they broke down a lot of the less committed Tom Bradley voters and just pulled them over. And there are other variations on it where people call it the social acceptability bias in polling in general, in lots of different kinds of survey research. It's hard to deny that it exists, but it's also hard to demonstrate any precise effect that it has. And it's hard to separate it out from all the other things that happen in the latter stages of a campaign. It's entirely possible that it will exist in this election. I know Glenn Beck has been theorizing about this on his radio program and a number of other people, most of them, not Glenn Beck, but most of them supporters of Donald Trump have said that he may have a lot of hidden support. There's no question, though, there are shy Trump voters out there, Mm -hmm. some of them who will go on Morning Edition and tell tens of millions of NPR listeners they're voting for Trump, but they don't want to put a sign in their yard and maybe have to face their neighbors. (laughs) We heard from uh, one gentleman who said, you know, I'm a Star Trek fan, but I'm not dressing up like a Klingon and going to the convention. (laughs) Well, this time around, I think I've heard them referred to more often as silent voters, that they don't necessarily want to tell people what their preference is, but they are going to vote. And isn't the silent voter sort of 
isn't that part of Trump's strategy? Hasn't the campaign said that they are going to motivate this vote? I, I think it, sometimes we've heard it referred to as the silent majority, that people that don't necessarily engage in the process but we're going to see and aren't reflected in the polls, but will show up on Election Day. That's part of their theory, isn't it? Right. But then a big part of that is then, OK, do you get that vote out? And yeah. a lot of the news that we've been seeing has been that Hillary Clinton has by far the more robust get out the vote um, operation. Uh, as opposed to Donald Trump. So, I mean, someone may tell a pollster, yeah, absolutely, I like Donald Trump. The question is, do you get all of those people to the polls? And well, is, is there any data in the early data that suggests that waves of people are showing up that people weren't anticipating? And I don't think we're seeing that yet. If it were in the data, it wouldn't be the silent majority. <laughs> right. And I mean, <laughs> there, there you go. There is one piece of data, and that is that Donald Trump oftentimes does better in internet polls than in telephone polls. And there you do not have the voice mm-hmm. of an interviewer whom you might identify as a person who might not want to hear you say Donald Trump. Yeah. So if you don't have that factor, if it is a strictly Internet poll, theoretically, Donald Trump would do better, and he does, generally speaking, do better in Internet polls. Now, there are other issues with Internet polls Mm -hmm. to question whether or not they are good reflections of the actual voting public. My question with the Bradley effect and the silent voter in this election is that the suggestion with the Bradley effect always was that you wanted to say you were with someone because of social pressure, but you weren't going to vote the other way. Mm -hmm. And it seems like between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there are two candidates that a lot of people are going to vote for that they don't necessarily want to acknowledge they're going to vote for. It doesn't seem like one or the other sort of benefits from that phenomenon in this particular mood of the country. Yeah. All right. Um. Moving on. Um, next up, we have another recorded question from Diane in New Jersey. Let's play it. Hey, NPR politics team. This is Diane in New Jersey. And here's my question. Any thoughts on why Sarah Palin has been keeping such a low profile in the election since her early endorsement of Donald Trump? I look forward to hearing your answer. Bye bye. Now, Sarah Palin was a Trump guest at the third debate, wasn't she? Yes, I she, was she was present in the audience. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we really got a strong signal from the Trump folks at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland when there was talk of her having a speaking role. And, of course, she was the big hit speaker of 2008. And then there wasn't. And then she wasn't going to speak. And when asked why, Donald Trump said, well, you know, it's an awfully long way from from Alaska <laughs> to Cleveland. And everyone sort of rocked back and thought, well, uh, Perhaps she is not someone that the campaign is all that excited about having speak for it. You also think that like surrogates are there to speak to pieces of the electorate that you want to get excited about you. And I think that the same part of the party that gets excited about Sarah Palin is already so excited about Donald Trump that he's already scratching that itch. Right. She's no value added. In yeah. Other words. Yeah. She also I think we see a lot less of her because she used to have a contract on Fox News. So you just saw her a lot more because she was on TV news a lot more. And then she let her contract expire and tried to start her own television venture. But now she mainly does appearances and speeches. She just isn't a cable news presence the way that she once was. So Mm -hmm. I feel like she seems lower profile. But she's still out there and she's still very popular with the grassroots. Mm -hmm. I will have to say, though, I don't think the Trump campaign has necessarily been uh, conscious all the time of that value added idea (laughs) that we need to to bring new people into the tent. Uh, A lot of their campaign strategy seems focused on just underscoring the support from the people they already have. Yeah. Okay, moving on, we have a question from Dan in Seattle. Dan writes, Love your show. My wife and I are huge fans. We are currently living several states apart, and it is one of our regular conversation topics. Oh, that's nice. We are about to have our honeymoon, and we settled on Washington, D.C. because we are huge nerds. My question is this. 
Is there anything we or any listener should make sure to visit, especially during this election season? We, of course, will be trying to get into the new Smithsonian Museum, but is there something special a political tourist should keep an eye out for? Thanks again. What do you guys think? What are your Hmm. date spots in Washington, (laughs) D.C.? This is a new question for the politics podcast. Uh, There are so many different aspects of the Smithsonian. Of course, the new African-American Museum, difficult to get into, but it's spectacular. It is spectacular. I've been and it is spectacular. And if you can get tickets, get them. There are also some of the oldest attractions are also still fantastic. Uh, They have redone the American History Museum in recent years, and it's uh, quite refurbished and still magnificent, has wonderful things in it. A little thing to look for they may not show you on the tour, Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Go find the room that has Thomas Jefferson's Bible Mm -hmm. and what he did with his Bible. Won't spoil the story. Just go find it. It's not heavily featured. It's a little controversial, but... Go find it. And also the archives. Mm. Go to the archives. Um, I would say I don't think you can ever go wrong doing a long walk on the National Mall at night when the monuments are lit up. It is still like it never loses its magic and its majesty. And I've lived in D.C. for 19 years. And even still, when I go down there and take a walk at night, it's still perfection. Absolutely. I would endorse that wholeheartedly. Uh, After this campaign, you might want to spend some time at the Lincoln Memorial reading the second inaugural address, (laughs) talking about binding up our wounds. Indeed. Indeed, the country had troubles at that time as well. And you have to come by NPR and see Studio 44, where the podcast is taken. You're welcome to do that. We have tours all the time. Mm -hmm. And a gift shop on the first floor. True. Speaking of of out-of-the-way things, um, D.C. itself, I think, has some great history. I've lived here for eight years, and I'm only finally... Uh, getting to it. But if, uh, the U Street um, area, the Shaw area, both have a lot of historical markers, especially about the civil rights history in D.C., uh, the riots that were in 1968. There's a lot of great stuff around there. So I would I would suggest that if you feel like getting off the beaten path a little. And congratulations on your marriage and enjoy your honeymoon. Uh, our last question comes from Kate, and it's also recorded. Let's hear it. Hi, my name's Kate. I live in Chicago, Illinois, and I have to say I love the podcast. And I don't really have a question, more of just like a comment that I want to know what you guys think of what I think of all of this, because this election has been so crazy. And I voted the day after early voting started. I was so ready for it to be over. But at the same time, I am obsessed. I cannot (laughs) stop reading about it. I've watched every single debate. I like marked it in my calendar as an event that I wanted to witness. I cannot stop. And it, and people are like on Facebook, like, well, what are all you jerks going to do when this election's over? What are you going to have to talk about? It's like, what am I going to have to talk about? It's like this election has given everybody the ability to jump on their high horse and we all get to judge it. And it's fun. And I don't know why that is. And I wonder what that means for the future. You know, I don't know a lot about the future, but I know this. People will always find things to complain about on Facebook. So I don't (laughs) think you have to worry about that, Kate. (laughs) If it's not elections, it'll be something else. But um, I will be getting on my high horse lay and talk about something. Well, you can't get off scot-free. Look, Kate, it is as obsessive as any experience in our lifetimes and at a level of intensity that is just difficult to describe and, frankly... No one's going to be nostalgic for it. At the same time, 
we're probably going to miss it in some respects. <laughs> There's probably going to feel to be some kind of huge vacuum when it all goes away. People always mm-hmm. ask, like, what are you going to do after the election? And I'm always like, that's when my job gets hard. Like, Horsley and I, you know, the day after the election, the White House and Congress beats is when I, th- our Suddenly stuff starts to pick up. <laughs> yeah, like, we've got lame ducks to worry about. We've got Paul Ryan and Kenny be the next speaker. And then we have the next administration. The first 100 days of a new administration is in some ways newsier and more intense than the campaign. And the thing I always say is campaigns are the fun part. The governing part is when things really get hard for people. And interesting. Mm-hmm. And interesting. And more policy. And I, and I, I mean, hope the listeners will, will stay interested as well. Yeah. I would tack on to that. Um, I don't think a lot of it is going to end at the election. I mean, and I'm not talking about whether, you know, various candidates concede or not. I'm talking about this election, I think, is going to... Uh, infect maybe too strong a word, but it's going to permeate our thinking for, you know, years, decades to come. I mean, I've been saying this whole time, I cannot wait to see what kind of dissertations come out of this election. I mean, I think it's changed the way a lot of people think about politics, maybe the way some people think about polling, the way that we even think about, you know, how prediction models uh, work and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I think this, there's the big question of whether this was a flash in the pan, whether Donald Trump just sort of came out of nowhere, or whether, you know, this election is a sign of something bigger going on in American politics. And I don't think anyone can answer that right now. And how do you govern in a time when people seem so polarized? Totally. And that are is the, so polarized. That's, yeah. that's a question that we're going to be debating all through the, the first term of whoever is running the next administration. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all for the mail. But first, Danielle has something to share with us. Yes. uh, What landed on my desk last night in a big FedEx box was a very nicely cross-stitched portrait of the politics podcast team and nicely framed. It is it is unbelievably uh, cute. I have tweeted it. I believe uh, the politics account may have as well. But you should check it out. It's ju- it's amazing and amazingly detailed. Mara Liason to the life. <laughs> yes. To the life. Her kids would recognize it. Yeah. So Miles Harris, uh, someone who I actually knew in college. Uh, Miles, thank you. We have the best listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and shout out to Megan, who listens while riding her bike in Pennsylvania. She wrote us a very nice note saying thanks for the show. So thanks to you, Megan. And a reminder to write us with your questions or record them. We love that. And send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We seriously read them all. We really do. Even if we don't reply, we do read them. And we love hearing what you're curious about. And it helps us inform our work and what we talk about on the show. So thank you. Even we need a day off sometime, so tomorrow we'll have one of our favorite episodes from the archives, which you should really explore if you're new to the show. We've been at it for almost a year now, you guys. Which is a third of the length of the election. (laughs) We'll be back with a new episode on Monday evening. Until then, keep up with our political coverage on NPR One and on your local public radio station. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Ilving, editor and correspondent. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.